Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse, a podcast made by the English Department at Macquarie University in Sydney. Um, as you can probably already tell, I'm not your usual lovely host of people. Um, my name is Kate Milne. I'm a student of the English Department and I'm acting as sort of a guest speaker here today. Um, topic for today's podcast, we're going to be looking at Indigenous authors specifically in the genre of historical fiction um, and we'll be looking at two works a bit more closely um, Barbed Wire and Cherry Blossoms by Anita Heath and Song of the Crocodile by Nadi Simpson but before we get into that any further I want to begin today by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which I am recording today who are the Wallamudigal people of the Darug Nation I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging and I also just wanted to send that same respect to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Island peoples listening to this podcast today. So, as I said, my name's Kate. I'm really excited to be getting to the opportunity to do this podcast. I'm going to talk to you guys about these wonderful books that I've had the chance to read recently. I must admit, I'm unfortunately not a massive purveyor of First Nations literature, which is definitely something that I myself want to improve on. So when I got the opportunity to do this podcast, I was very excited because it meant that I not only got to read these two wonderful books, but I also got a really good recommendation list from other books to choose from. So I will definitely be checking those out. So I'm not massive. Um, I don't tend to go for Australian literature. I tend to more go for fantasy or sci-fi, but I do enjoy a good historical fiction as well. So I'm really excited to be talking about these two texts today because I have been sadly lacking in my Australian fiction in the past. So as I'll be talking about both of these books I'll be giving them a bit of a review going over their themes. I do just want to mention as well that I will be talking about spoilers from both of the books so if you haven't had the chance to go and read these two wonderful novels yet uh, you know pause the podcast come back when you've done in a couple of days you know and we can have a bit of a chat about it. Also I just wanted to note that um, as I will be talking about these books in full detail today, give them a bit of a review looking at some of their themes, some of their characters, um, there will be plenty of spoilers ahead. So if you haven't had the chance to go and read these two wonderful books yet, I'd really recommend doing so. Pause this podcast here, go and get a copy. Again it's Barbed Wire and Cherry Blossoms by Anita Heath and Song of the Crocodile by Nadi Simpson. Go and have a read and then I'll be here waiting. You can come back and see if you agree with what I have to say. See if you don't. So uh, let's get into it. The first one I want to be talking about a bit is Barbed Wire and Cherry Blossoms. Now this is a reasonably short book and while it is historical fiction I would also probably class this as a bit of a romance which is very typical of Anita Heath. I know some people may not agree with me because again spoilers but this does not have the uh, typical happy ever after that often comes with a romance Um, but I just think that the romance plot is just so integral to this book that not giving it that credit would be misleading in a way because what this story is really about is blossoming relationship between Mary who is a young 17 year old Aboriginal girl living nearby Arambi station uh, on an Aboriginal mission um, and Hiroshi who is a Japanese prisoner of war being kept in the war compound on the fridges of Kaura. So this book is based on the historical event in which uh, over a thousand Japanese soldiers actually broke free of that compound leading to many of them being killed or you know recaptured and a lot of them actually ended up committing suicide themselves just because of the intense honor system there and while the relationship and the characters aren't necessarily uh, based on a real story or real people this is just kind of a reimagining of what would have happened if one of those Japanese soldiers had happened to be sheltered by an Aboriginal family after after his escape. So it's, it's definitely it's, it's definitely historical fiction, but I really do think that the romance is just such a, a key part of it and what makes it such a, a gripping, a gripping story. Now, I um, as I said, I really, really enjoyed this book overall. It's nice and short. It's it's um you know about two hundred fifty pages, so I knocked it over in one afternoon because I just really couldn't put it down. <laughs> I I did find the writing style a little bit difficult at first. That's 
probably just more of a personal preference thing because I tend to prefer a bit more flowery language and this was quite simple, quite straightforward, which I actually ended up really liking by the end of it. It just took me a bit of time to get used to. I found the characters in particular very engaging, which is important, especially in uh, this, you know, romantic historical fiction. If you don't like the main characters or the main love interests, I find reading romance to be a real drag. And while I don't have a whole heap of experience with reading romance, I have read some where I found the the main character or like, you know, the love interest to be annoying. <laughs> Thankfully that wasn't the case here, so I would have really happily read another couple of hundred pages detailing these two, Mary and Hiroshi learning about each other and their blossoming love story and all that that entailed so i guess yeah one of my only complaints is that it's too short <laughs> i just enjoyed it too much didn't want it to be over i also really enjoyed the ending of this one even though we didn't get the happily ever after or they got married and had a family and settled down and it was all perfect it's actually a really poignant reminder of why this is historical fiction rather than being classified as romance because they didn't they didn't get to be happy together they didn't get to have their relationship they didn't get to be in love because of the circumstances fortunate circumstances that they had found their love together in it was both a cultural reason and for both of them really their cultural differences were too much for them to overcome in a reasonable way so they just couldn't really be together it was also obviously a result of the racism that was rampant in australia at that time and while bits of that still remain today this would be a match that hopefully would get a lot less opposition but of course back then such a marriage wouldn't have been allowed at all and so it made their any sort of hope for their circumstances very difficult so i think that the fact that this novel kind of focuses on that reality as opposed to having that suspension of disbelief is actually really good because which is kind of a reminder of Ahisa's tact and but her intelligence as well in a, being able to highlight their similarities, their differences throughout their relationship, but also, again, bring home the historical truth in a way that doesn't feel heavy-handed but also is a stark reminder of just how bad things were for both, you know, First Nations people but also for Japanese people but also Asian people more broadly in this time period and then of course we're also looking at song of the crocodile by nadi simpson this is a much heavier book it's very tragic but i i found it really deeply enjoyable in a way it was i like to think of it as a hopeful book not necessarily in the sense that the ending itself is hopeful but in the sense that I maintained a sense of hope throughout because I just I really wanted things to get better I really wanted it to be a case where any of the protagonists just caught a break and while there were moments of triumph and real love and connection and intimacy in this novel I think the kind of cycle of trauma and hardship and with the, us witnessing that kind of not necessarily a downward spiral but definitely a kind of roller coaster of downwards momentum for the kind of different generations in the family yeah i while i maintain that sense of hope it was crushed by the end of it I, it was a again it's a very tragic novel and in part it's because because of the style of writing so this this book kind of follows four generations of one indigenous australian family the billy mill family specifically and yeah it kind of follows these characters along and because of that you get to see them not only as adults but for, for many of them you also get to see them as children growing up and then seeing how their kind of sense of wonder and interesting connection and joy really is just crushed by the kind of extenuating circumstances they find themselves in mean, the the prevalent racism traumatic experiences we have to go through and that they are also themselves a part of it's a very much a cycle of violence that is generational it's a very interesting look at the impacts of generational trauma it was a, another book that really gripped me i find it 
really hard to put down although I did have to take breaks from it just because I was I was upset I'm, I'm, I'm a big emotional reader so you know if things are sad I'm gonna be crying if things are happy I'm gonna be cheering and uh, this one definitely you have to roll with the punches a little bit especially oh this you also find like the more the happier nicer like just like the really good people in this book are often the ones who get the most uh, most messed up so yes it's definitely a very emotional one but it's so well written I really liked the interplay the kind of duality of the story so there's uh, you know most of the book focuses on the, the living the, the generations who survive between chapters there's also this little peak or insight into kind of the realm of the spirit so the people who you have met earlier in the story since passed on whether peacefully or otherwise i thought it was really interesting technique simpson was also really good at not overusing it because i think if she had done it too much it definitely would have overshadowed the characters still alive and it would have taken a precedence that it probably shouldn't have but instead because she was able to kind of show that restraint it gave a really interesting insight into the different characters a little bit more into kind of dream time as well and it, it was a really mythical thing that kind of drew it away from just the realm of historical fiction and had a little bit of that fantastical element in there as well by kind of mixing the dream time with with the real events that were going on so this is also a historical fiction book obviously we are talking about historical fiction today unlike barbed wire and cherry blossoms it is not based on a real historical event necessarily or a real historical town even it's set in a place called darnmore which if you know if you are australian like i am it feels so familiar <laughs> in the sense that i literally had to look up whether dumb was a real town that i've driven through because it just I'm, I'm so reminiscent simpson does really well in describing that kind of very rural country town feel which is just on the edge of nowhere and does kind of have these sort of ideas and these monuments of different things while still also having a very out of touch connection with their indigenous populations i find in a lot of ways so it was really interesting and yes while this is not based on just a single historical event or even a historical family it is an amalgamation of the different ways that racism can impact it's focusing kind of mainly on like the late 20th century kind of into the 21st century it's not exactly specified again it's not specified in the same way that it is in barbed wire and cherry blossoms where it's very clearly 1944 it's a bit more tenuous when this kind of is you get some indicators one of the biggest indicators is of course the arrival of the washing machine as a piece of technology and then seeing it become more commonplace but it's not that it, it kind of gives you some idea or some indicator but again being a rural town it it's not like saying oh the washing machine was first in sydney at this time therefore it must be set then it's like no it'd probably be a couple more years you know half a decade or so depending on different things so yeah it's, it's it's not exactly nailed down but it is a really interesting way of looking at how prevalent racism of australian culture in the kind of late 20th mid to late 20th century to the 21st century kind of impacts um you know first nations people more broadly but this one family specifically and i think uh, something really interesting about that perspective is that Simpson kind of highlights that the kind of insidious underlying commonplace racism has just as much impact as the kind of overt big displays of racism so it's not just a case of racist policies or of specific incidents such as like you know sexual assault or murder or stuff or anything like that while these obviously do have a big impact on the psyche of the family it's also just like the kind of underlying racism that they face, you know, not being allowed to uh, walk in the town, um, having people constantly muttering about them or questioning them, questioning their place in their own, you know, own land um, is, has just as much of a kind of wearing down effect as the kind of more overt displays, um, which I think is really interesting. And again, I think Simpson handles it really well. And it's kind of a very, eye-opening perspective especially for people who have the privilege of not having to experience such racism because it is still prevalent today so let's delve into these two authors a bit more i myself actually hadn't heard of anita heese or Nadia simpson until i'd looked at this list read these books but i can 
definitely say that they have found a fan in me. I will be going through Anita Hayes's other works um, if they are as good as Barbed Wine Cherry Blossoms and I will also be eagerly awaiting Nani Simpson's next novel because this was her debut novel. Yeah, so Anita Hayes, she's a well-established author who is a multi-award winner. She tends to write historical, popular and romance novels so this book is a true, true showcase of all her abilities. Uh, she's also proudly a member of the we're a Dodgery Nation. And, and yeah, she's written many different books. This book was actually a finalist for the Queensland Literary Awards and was actually shortlisted for the New South Wales Premier Literary Awards in 2018. So she is just fantastic, really, and a really excellent showing of Australian writing. So she writes a lot of fiction. She's a popular author in what has been called the chocolate fiction genre, which is a subgenre of chiclet fiction, um, which specifically is focusing on getting people of colour as the leads of kind of romance books because it has very typically been known as more of a cis white western thing so um she's definitely part of that movement she's also written some non-fiction as well as some kids books some poetry and has even done some anthologies where she was an editor she's a very very talented busy lady and this is a really excellent novel of hers nadi simpson is a first-time author so like as i said this is her debut novel she is the winner of the black and white writing fellowship and actually became a multi-award winner as a result of this novel she won the queensland literary awards for fiction book of the year and she's also the als gold medal winner she was shortlisted for heaps of awards and longlisted for even more so this book definitely kind of took the australian literary scene by storm when it was released nadi's actually from the uralaray nation um and she is definitely not new to the scene for other things she's a decades-long career as an educator and a musician which she lends itself well to this kind of debut work music is a big part of this novel as is education so i think it really highlights her intelligence her wit and her even-handedness in dealing with a lot of these topics so you know now we've discussed the authors a bit more let's kind of really sink our teeth into these novels a bit we've already kind of been spoiling things as we go but again this is just going to be another spoiler warning this is about to be a bit more of a detailed plot breakdown so uh if you still haven't read it yet again pause this podcast i don't mind go get a cup of tea or coffee or something hot chocolate i'm a hot chocolate drinker and curl up with a good book press peg come back whenever you like there will be spoilers and i won't be giving this warning again so yes, we have Barbed Wire and Cherry Blossoms. As I said before, it is a historical novel which uses the event of the Cowra Breakout to examine two perspectives which are often left out of this retelling, which is the perspectives of the Japanese prisoners of war who are making their escape, for better or for worse, and of the First Nations people living at Rumby Station, who were actually treated worse than the prisoners of war, yet were still expected to send people to fight for the country that abandoned them. So what really happens is Hiroshi, who is a Japanese prisoner of war being kept in Kaura, is part of the escape that saw over a thousand soldiers fleeing from the compound in a move that included locking up guards and setting fire to their cabins as kind of a distraction. This breakout en- ended up with a lot of them actually being dead. Hundreds of them were killed. Quite a few were recaptured. And again, many of them actually ended up taking their own lives rather than suffering the cultural humiliation of being recaptured. And then... Mary is a 17-year-old girl. She is the daughter of Banjo Williams and is the eldest daughter of the family. Her father is kind of like an elder in the community and he's actually the one who discovers Hiroshi under his front porch after the breakout attempt. He goes in meetings with some of his neighbours and the other elders of the community to try and discuss what to do. He's very firm in the fact that he doesn't want to hand Hiroshi back over to the to the guards because he doesn't think it's fair to kind of imprison him for something. And he also finds a kind of a kinship with Hiroshi in the fact that they are both prisoners in a way to the white community that controls that the compound and also the, the prison system over there. 
Yeah, so after kind of come to an agreement to not only hide Hiroshi, but also not tell anyone about it, which is a very important point in the story, Banjo puts Hiroshi into the bomb shelter they have in their kind of backyard, which is described as like a underground single room, basically, which is a 10 feet below ground, which has a ladder attached to it and like a very big iron roof. So obviously it's there, for, it was built when, because this was during the Second World War, as part of the precautions against potential enemy attack, but it hasn't been used. It hasn't been used as again. This is set in Australia, where that was less of an issue than say Britain, which were they were very populated and very populous. So yes, he puts Hiroshi in there, and the congregation of our five, so him, his wife, and then a couple of their neighbours, make make the deal to not say anything and to try and contribute to the food Hiroshi were needed as well. Originally, there's a bit of a language barrier because Hiroshi doesn't reveal that he has some knowledge of English so that definitely comes down to a bit of fear I think and also just that kind of cultural difference because he'd never seen an indigenous person before and was and really obviously doesn't know very much about Australian culture apart from what he's seen as a prisoner. So yes after that happens Mary gets the job as the eldest daughter of being the one to go and deliver the food because they the parents believed it'd be a bit less suspicious if it was the same person going every night also as like a kind of 17 year old who also looks after her family's other children a lot she is probably the least suspicious person to be going out kind of at dusk and at dawn you know once or twice a day to go and deliver food um, as opposed to banjo or his wife so yes the key characters in this story we have uh mary obviously and Hiroshi. But Banjo is also a very important character in this story as well. Not only is he important to the plot, but he is also someone who is able to see beyond the cultural differences initially and who is like solo in his defence of Hiroshi and that really allows for this romance to blossom. So just delving into that a bit more, Mary is of course the heroine in the love story. She's probably the protagonist of the book or, or at least a partial protagonist with Hiroshi. But she also has a role as an educator and a carer. Now she is a fair bit younger than Hiroshi who is 25 to her 17. She's shown to be kind of wise beyond her years in a lot of ways as a result of her experience as the eldest daughter but also as a First Nations person. She's shown to be quite caring so she cares for her younger siblings. She's really eager to help her parents and this is actually quite a subversion of the more typical strong female character which kind of populates a lot of romance novels these days and has actually for a long time you know Pride and Prejudice a lot of Jane Austen's heroines are notable for being strong independent women and while Mary is no undoubtedly a strong woman she is actually quite tied to her family and the fact that she is a bit more caring it's a lot more subversive for a person of colour I think it's really important to note that because of the kind of prevalence of white protagonists what's seen as subversive for a, a, a white female character or even a white male character is going to be quite different for what is subversive for a black female character or a black male character or an asian female character or an asian male character so because of the stereotype of indigenous women and especially black women in media having this kind of caring gentler character is very subversive and very interesting and also i think it rings very true because mary is strong-willed but she also is very family oriented and i think that's really really lovely and very interesting and it, it makes her very likeable as well. I wasn't entirely sold initially on the age gap. I, I'm never really a fan of those, uh, especially because she was under the age of 18. But you know that that's partly it being a kind of a wartime story. It's partly just the you know reality of the situation if you're a young teenage girl and you kind of have this person who you're the only one you ever, you ever see and you have this secret that only you two know. It's cause feelings potentially especially when he is nice and kind and empathetic and listens and cares it's definitely going to cause feelings to emerge so while I didn't enjoy it initially I and I still can't say I love it I didn't hate it towards the end of it um, especially because their relationship doesn't get physical I think that would have caused much more of a problem for me their relationship is based on mutual love and understanding and admiration and a desire to learn about each other and that kind of happens for many months before it becomes physical in any way and when it does become physical it's really only with kind of kissing and stuff like that so that was fine <laughs> 
And then of course we have Roshi who represents the other even in even in the story. He, he has the role of the hero in this love story that again he's the the partial protagonist it kind of jumps between Hiroshi's and Mary's perspectives with some other perspectives as well particularly Banjo occasionally but yes it is mainly between Hiroshi and Mary and yeah he's a bit he's like 25 he is a Japanese soldier and his story is really interesting because it shows the impact of societal expectations and particularly of patriarchal demands in culture more broadly but also specifically in Japanese culture so he's story highlights the kind of importance placed on any sense of emasculation both internally and externally but also in his role as an unlikely romantic hero and he is an unlikely romantic hero he is sort of the one who is stuck he relies on mary and her family but mainly mary for everything so the provision of food of shelter of safety all things that more stereotypically men were expected to provide for the household but he's completely reliant on their kindness they also come from a background which does not mean that they have a lot of those things to give so the fact that they are giving it so freely and willingly and without complaint is a testament to their nature as well but i think it's a really important thing to note because it does do a fair bit in mitigating any kind of awkwardness or tension about the age gap because he is kind of so reliant on her as well not only in the way that she provides him food and shelter but also because she could go to the authorities and either cause imprisonment or potentially execution not, not that he would be but that would obviously be the fear so it definitely alleviates any coercion or anything like that um that might have that might have occurred otherwise and it, it m means that the relationship feels very natural um and again part of this really comes down to anita Hayes's brilliance in developing the relationship organically i think if it was a bit more of a typical thing where people fall in love after a week and or stuff like that it, it would have given me a much stronger ick than it did <laughs> um but you know as it was it was a very realistic, very lovely, emerging relationship. But yes, his story definitely comes down to the cultural implications because it's it's very interesting. There's three cultures that kind of interplayed, although you really don't get to say to the two of them. The third is so prevalent anyway that you know it, which is, of course, white Australia. You don't really get the perspective of any of the white characters, which is refreshing. But like, it's still, you still know it because that's just part of history. That's just part of the Western perspective that we have as readers. We know what the, what the white history is. This book is very specifically not telling us that part, it's telling us the history of the First Nations people and of the, you know, the Japanese presence of war. And in doing so is kind of reve revealing some of, it's revealing insight into those cultures a bit more broadly. Hiroshi, is, the entire book is kind of embroiled in this sense of personal failure as a result of being captured, which is something that I think it's Australian culture and Western culture finds a bit more difficult to relate to because the idea of the honour system seems so foreign to us that we can't imagine giving up our lives, committing suicide as a result of being dishonoured in the sense of being captured rather than dying in battle. But it, it's very much a, a true historical fact that this happened and that this was part of the cultural perspective for those soldiers at the time and it gives insight into why different people do different things and how different sides might have fought and why such a breakout might have occurred even though from from the perspective of white australia or from the eastern perspective more broadly it's oh they actually had pretty decent conditions as prisoners of war they weren't treated badly which of course has the caveat of well they were still prisoners <laughs> but it's a, it's a point in the book that the prisoners of war were treated better than the Aboriginal community. So it's like, oh, well, why would they need to break out then when they were being treated by most standards reasonably well? Well, it comes down to that kind of cultural difference. So yeah, here's a really interesting look at the, at the impact of societal expectations, impact of family. His family is such a prevalent force throughout the novel, even though you never get to meet them. And all of this tangles up with the emasculation he feels because he's not only a prisoner of war, but also just so reliant on other people's kindness. Yes, and then of course we have um, Bandra Williams, who is just crucially important for the plot in a lot of different ways, but he deserves to be recognised as the person who is able to instantly overcome cultural differences. And again, it, it's about seeing someone past the colour of their skin, past their, their different accent, past all of that, and just seeing them as a person and recognising Roshi as someone else who is on the fringe like himself. And so it's, he finds it to be his responsibility to show kindness, even when he himself doesn't get to experience that kindness. It's obviously at the risk of his, of his own life as he knows it, because if he 
been found to be harboring escaped prisoner, he would have gone to jail. And that is a risk to his, his only freedom, but also his family's livelihood. So the fact that he so unfalteringly chooses kindness is really important and really telling in this story. So yes, those kind of three characters obviously relate to other characters as well. It's mainly focusing on the relationship and the share exchange of information between Mary and Hiroshi. And then Hiroshi does get to escape. He can't spend his entire life in the bunker, although that does mean that as a result, he goes back to Japan, which means that his connection with Mary is severed. And that is a really lovely, heartbreaking ending scene where we see Mary has grown up and moved on and found a different partner, has a different family, because she had to, because she was a young woman in, you know, the 19, 1940s in Australia. And it's, it's obviously going to be very different, difficult to remain unmarried because it was just the expectation. How was she meant to have any sort of finance or any sort of freedom if she wasn't married? So yes, we, we see her and we can instantly recognise, even though this was a very short part of the book, that that's the kind of decisions that she had to make. And she seems to be happy and in love, whereas Hiroshi is kind of heartbroken upon seeing her again. They don't talk, he just kind of observes her and observes this change. And we recognise that he has waited for her. He has maintained the hope that they can be together, which again I think comes down to a really interesting part of their dynamic, the, the hopeful versus the realism, which has kind of come. And I think they kind of swap that by the end of the novel between who, who maintains the hope and who is more realistic about the future. And then of course we have uh, Song of the Crocodile which is very different, obviously it has a lot more characters because it is following uh, uh, four generations of the Billy Mill family. They live on the kind of outskirts of the, uh, initially anyway, they live on the outskirts of a town uh, called Dunmore, which is fictitious, but is described as the gateway to happiness in the sense that it is one of those, uh, again, it's a very typical rural Australian town where there's not a whole lot of people. It's a couple of amenities, but it's very much on the way to something else. It's a, it's a pit stop of a refuel, a sandwich, a beer. Um, before you continue on to wherever it is that you're trying to go. So yes, it is a bit of a nebulous timeline. It's likely, again, based on the kind of inventions and washing machines and all that sort of stuff, likely set late 1950s, early 1960s to begin with. The segregation laws were ostensibly no longer in effect, though of course the racism was still very uh, perversive. Um, that's kind of just what we're basing the um, the timeline for this on. The kind of as a story which focuses on the multi-generational effect of trauma, just through the uncaring, sudden deaths and suffering that kind of plagues the Billy Mill family across four different generations, which ultimately culminates in their violent erasure. There are a lot of characters to get into. They, again, we're looking at four different generations here. So we'll kind of focus, I guess, on the key points for some of the main characters. Each of these characters are very multifaceted and dimensional because they refuse to ever become merely stereotypes or archetypes and they are all kind of fundamentally grey characters. I think they definitely turn towards becoming a bit darker by the end of the novel, like the kind of characters, I think the generations progressively get a bit more harder and that's absolutely a result of the kind of generational trauma cycle they are embroiled in. Um, there's no two ways about that. While obviously they all kind of face racism and, you know, arguably as progress is being made, racism should be becoming less prevalent. It doesn't necessarily negate the effects of this kind of long-lasting traumatic memory they all kind of have to deal with and overcome whether successfully or not. So we start the story with, it, the kind of protagonist is Celie, but we do a collective of Margaret, who is Celie's mother. So Margaret is part of the older generation. She's kind of used to the racism she continuously faces, especially in her like working environment and has kind of found ways to survive and rally around it. Margaret is the kind of the catalyst for the story because it's her being fired from the hospital that leads to the events of everything else. And it's also just a, a stark reminder of racism and insidiousness. So Margaret is a worker at the hospital. She specifically is 
laundry person who collects the bed sheets and washes them. She's not allowed into the hospital as an Indigenous Australian. And so we see kind of also her interacting with other, other Indigenous patients as well, that they are kind of kept separate and no one else, none of the other like white nurses really look after them in the way of like giving them food and stuff. So Margaret takes it upon herself to actually chat with them, make sure that they are comfortable past just the, the bare bones medical treatment they receive. And she is fired for stealing something that she specifically did not do because again she wasn't allowed into the hospital so how would she even be able to get in there to steal but they needed a scapegoat they pinned it on her she's fired and it kind of sets the story in motion in a lot of ways so she has at the time of the story's opening two adult daughters um Celia is our focus and she is uh, pregnant at the time the story begins she's got a lovely husband by the name of Tom who is just described in a really wonderful ways um he's he's shown to be attentive and caring and someone who is pushing for reform and is, is specifically pushing for more rights for the um, Indigenous community. Silly also has an older sister, Bessie, who has a husband and some kids as well who are about seven um, by the time that Silly is pregnant. Uh, she's shown to be in a lot less of a happy marriage and Bessie's a really interesting character in a lot of ways. But yes, so uh, the story opens with Margaret being fired. We then kind of move to Celie giving birth to daughter Millie, which unfortunately coincides with the death of Tom. His his death is kind of nebulous in that you're not un, you're not entirely sure if it's intentional or not, but the the implication is that he gets run down on his way home from he had kind of gone away for a week in an attempt to talk to the town, the larger town, Gallic Gallic Council there and to fight for reform that way and is hit by a car on the way home and killed and they don't find out until uh, after Celia's labour has concluded and so she gives birth to Millie who's described as having the storm in her eyes because it was a storming night when uh, she was born. Celia is a character who throughout the novel is the most attached to like the sense of community and to the idea of the campgrounds which is where the Aboriginal people are forced to stay in Darmore they're not allowed to make home for themselves in the community. She really fights to make a name for herself and her community in Darmore. She ultimately creates her own business as a, as a laundry woman by going up to the mayor and being like, oh, well, you said you wanted to help me after my husband died. Well, here's a way you can help. Um, give me your clothes and give me money to wash them. And is basically able to keep herself and her family afloat just through sheer pure willpower and resolve, which is, it's, it's, she's a very inspiring character in a lot of ways. And so her business kind of goes from her going and doing the washing to eventually she's able to purchase an actual laundromat and you kind of see that how that goes but you also see the kind of change in her as she realizes what this has cost her daughter ultimately Celie ends as kind of removed from her community and her family she kind of becomes overcome by shame because her desperation for a better life uh, exposed her daughter to sexual violence and allowed more opportunity for degradation as they became more assimilated into the into the white community through the through the virtue of the business being there and then also eventually by their family getting a house outside of the campgrounds and in the actual town itself which while it seems to be a a positive thing ultimately just kind of makes them separated from the other aboriginal people in the campground so it's that that kind of warring sense of wanting a better life but the cost of your community in the process yes so then we have millie who we watch her grow from a kind of a young carefree and very sweet girl she becomes a very stoic hardened woman as i said she also experiences sexual violence at the age of 15 as a direct result of racism the mayor who also watched her grow up sexually abuses her and he says it's so that he says it's her payment which is just the most nefarious thing ever but it says it, he says it's her payment so that her family might actually be allowed into the town and he does hold true to that promise it just changes Millie forever and she faces continuous racism because not only does that happen uh, she's also becomes pregnant as a result and while she does end up marrying a again another lovely indigenous australian man by the name of will their family is ostracized because obviously the resulting child patty is not purely indigenous and so she kind of faces ostracism both from the white community because of this the continuous racism but also from the black community because they kind of saw they obviously her differential treatment they associate it as her using sexual favors to become better as opposed to the rape it actually was and then the next kind of 
character that we do focus on, so the fourth generation, is that son, so Paddy. So Paddy is shown to be very different, especially to his brother, who is the child of Will and Millie. Paddy is treated differently by his mother than his brother Yari, which he notices because, of course, he does. Every child does notice that. And it's, it's very unfortunate because Millie, again, was shown to be so sweet, so lovely, so kind. <laughs> And she just becomes this stoic, hardened woman. And you just, you know, you want to be angry because it's like, oh, you're treating a child badly. But at the end, you just kind of feel this deep, profound sense of sympathy because you can understand why that constant reminder of the most traumatic experience of her life is not something that she can easily overcome and not something that she ever really overcomes until the very end. So Paddy, his separation from his family and community is is what is ultimately responsible for his transformation to the angry, violent man he becomes. Paddy, also, Paddy and Millie also both lose Will and Yari just in exceedingly tragic circumstances, quite close together. So Yari, the younger brother, dies when he's quite young and only reasonably shortly after Will the father passes away as well. Paddy straddles a line between again the white community and the First Nations people and he can never really truly fit in into either again because of his family's disconnect to their Aboriginal background. His feelings of alienation are kind of inherent to children of parents from different cultures and it's become a very big issue in today's world especially for First Nations people whose ancestry was attempted to be wiped out and I think it's really important to note that while a lot of the times the kind of perspectives we see uh, the American perspective of quotation marks mixed traced babies in Australia it's very much a case of any sort of indigenous heritage means that you are indigenous and that is a direct result of the fact that so much of history was spent trying to wipe out First Nations ancestry. That being said, he does just feel that extreme disconnect from both sides, from both the white community for his indigenous blood and appearance, but also from his family, from his mother specifically, but also from the community because it's less to do with his kind of being mixed, but more just about his family's lack of connection to the campgrounds and to culture as a result. So let's look at some of the key themes in these two books. I'm sure you've already started to piece together some of them yourself, just based on the kind of the plot overview and this kind of breakdown of the characters, but I just want to get into it a bit more in a bit of a nitty gritty sort of way. I sink our teeth into it really. Um, so yeah, Sparred Wine and Cherry Blossoms, as I said before, chick lit, romance, historical fiction, belongs to all those genres and it has also been labelled as part of the rising subgenre of chocolate. So chick lit is a kind of emerging genre which described is that it's literature about women, for women, written by women usually. And again that's kind of changing slightly but it, it's definitely about the pushing of the female perspective and female themes into more popular literature. And then yes again chocolate is a subgenre of that which is trying to ensure that those perspectives are not just that of the white cis Christian western woman but is also about putting perspectives of minority characters at the forefront as well. I think what sets Heath apart is the fact that she remains committed to the political and historical consequences of colonialism even as she employs the romance plotline. So she's part of like a rising form of literature which is working to undo the cultural illiteracy of many mainstream Australians and also just more widespread audiences anyway but yeah and, and I'm part of that cultural literacy until I obviously I, I have read some some indigenous authors works but I, I'd never read a romance novel which had a an indigenous protagonist so I think hers is a part of a very important body of work that is really trying to undo that perspective where it is just the white perspective that is enforced. He's kind of populates the, this kind of popular literature with historical fact and in doing so she ensures that the historical and contemporary effects of colonialism are not forgotten or ignored in favour of making this book more palatable. Again I think this is why the ending is just so fantastic because if she had had them end up happily ever after living together it would have just felt so disingenuous to history and it would have made it almost a fantasy because it would have just been a an incomplete ignorance of the truth of the time period which is that that sort of relationship would never have been able to prosper. And ultimately what it does really is it adds another dimension to the characters and it creates a realistic multifaceted romance story that doesn't shy away from the truth of the prejudice that both these characters face in different ways. I think the aim of the novel in particular is to create a story that both instructs on the history and the culture of Aboriginal people 
whilst also showing the realities of their day-to-day life. It highlights the ways in which the Indigenous Australian cultural values are very different to white Western Australian values and then again also very different to Japanese like Eastern values and so it kind of builds on the growing body of literature that puts these values at the forefront of the story but then it also doesn't shy away from how these values didn't work or weren't exactly lauded in a post-colonial Australian society and how because of the racism prevalent in this time period the reality of day-to-day life was that it was very difficult and that they were treated very poorly in a number of different ways. The Second World War is also not an unimportant part of the text. It does fade into the background I think in a very respectful way as the romance blossoms between Hiroshi and Mary and again I think that's very true to the Australian experience. A lot of the texts about World War II obviously come from the more European-centric viewpoint, or they come from Australian soldiers fighting in the war, but there isn't as much thought given to the experiences of people in Australia who were still obviously very affected by the war, but, you know, Australia wasn't obviously as targeted in the war, so we didn't get as much of the wartime horrors um, in the same way that destruction was levelled across all of Europe and other places and you know and in Asia as well so I think the war is important but it's it's um, very prevalent and you get a lot of news headings um, news headlines that is um, also obviously Hiroshi's experience as a soldier is talked about and delved into as part of his growing relationship with Mary and it's kind of a way that they are always going to be quite separate and alienated from each other because she doesn't have that experience and then there's also of course the mention of how Indigenous Australians were still called up to fight for the Australian lines without actually having the same rights as white Australians. So there is some, the, as I said, it's not an unimportant part of the text. Definitely takes uh, the, the back burner as opposed to the kind of deep dive and deep focus on the individuals of Mary and Hiroshi and also their relationships as it grows. The war is kind of like a catalyst by which mean the tough questions are asked regarding the rights of the First Nations people versus the prisoners of war. But again, it doesn't necessarily have the same it's, it's it's a war story but i would say that's like the kind of fifth thing i'd call it obviously being chiclet or popular fiction or romance and most importantly historical fiction first this book also highlights how the requirements of other people particularly white people to turn to first nations people for education exacts a demanding mental toll for first nation people particularly women who often find themselves educating others on their own history but that's part of the kind of disconnect between Mary and Hiroshi and I think again and Peace navigates it in just such a incredibly poignant way to show that Mary is not just a everlasting patient source of knowledge and she doesn't ha- she shouldn't have to be the fact that she has to constantly explain her own culture and her own history just because it is isn't the kind of the norm of what's expected in Australia despite them obviously being the first nations people it, it takes a toll and a lot of times that even though it comes from a place potentially of you know good intentions when people are constantly asking about oh like what can i do to help with the rights of you know first nations people or what's like you know what's your history blah 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 by putting that kind of educational demand on the first nations person or like whatever other minority it may be it ultimately is asking them to take on that role of an educator as opposed to doing their research yourself. So while it may go from a good place, it is something that you need to be mindful of. This book shows that disconnect between wanting to educate but also the mental toll it takes to constantly having to educate really well. But again, it also emphasises the fact that that education is the key to change. Though this kind of suggestion is that the education should be more of a self-education, a personal journey, rather than relying on the time and energy of the First Nations people all the time. Obviously, kind of racial divisions and prejudice are a massive part of this book, set in 1944, but there are still racial divisions today that are startlingly clear in it, and it paints a very paints a picture of racism that is inherent in the heart of the Australian psyche in a really good way. Because while there isn't, unlike in Song of the Crocodile, where there's kind of reinforced overt racial trauma, which is very so much a prevalent thing, this definitely highlights more so the kind of insidious underlying racism that's kind of at the centre of the Australian psyche, and how that this has just as much of a damaging effect. So again, the fact that the First Nations people were treated more poorly than prisoners of war says a lot about historically how they were treated but it also it it kind of emphasizes how deep-rooted 
that racism is because this was less than less than 100 years ago and so it's it's you know one or two generations ago and so it's not something that's gonna that we can pretend has truly gone away because people are still alive today that had to experience this racism or or who were the people causing causing this racism to prevail really i think that in particular Hisa's choice to have Hiroshi as the main or one of the main point of views is really perfect to situate the audience to his uh, perspective and to show that in overcoming racist beliefs we can become aware of the more universal feelings that bind people together such as love and homesickness and kindness and fear because every person no matter where you come from is driven and motivated by these sort of feelings but through Hiroshi's own journey of understanding and of bridging the kind of cultural divide it, it becomes really apparent how these two people Mary and Hiroshi who are so culturally different and so diverse are still able to find a commonality and a common ground and a shared experience which I think is the real is the real key message there in, in the book at, at its heart it's about overcoming differences and finding the commonality between people. It also, I think this book is important because it highlights the different ways people can face imprisonment, especially from, the, again, the historical perspective is, is historical fiction. Hiroshi, obviously, as a prisoner of war, he faces just the very much the physical imprisonment. He isn't allowed to leave. And then that, again, continues even when he makes his escape because, well, he's still kind of a prisoner in the fact sense that he's can only stay in one room. In fact, his conditions kind of get worse because he can't go outside. He has very little food and he can't leave Australia because he's in the middle of nowhere and doesn't know his way around. And obviously it would stand out a fair bit time period as well. But he also kind of faces a mental imprisonment due to like the cultural shame surrounding imprisonment. He has, a, again, a very big mental struggle in the fact sense that he doesn't want to necessarily commit suicide but he feels kind of like he has to because he constantly refers to his father and his mother's shame and how if if they back home realize he hasn't been killed in battle but has in fact been in prison then they will be ostracized from society and really driven out as a result so he definitely faces a lot of different sorts of imprisonment and yet still he has greater liberties than the first nations people who are apparently free they they have much less food they have much less rights like the, the prisoners of war um particularly the italian prisoners of war are very much noted as having jobs and being reliable and friendly and getting on with the uh, kind of white Australian community and they they almost trusted well they are trusted more despite being prisoners of war they are trusted more than the actual First Nations people who have grown up alongside them and who have been part of the community for longer than they have so it's really interesting to see the different sort of ways that liberty can be applied in this situation I think as well it's important to note the characters themselves none of them are perfect they are kind of grey and but again this only serves to highlight their very core of their humanity they are scared they get angry at each other they fight and the, those fights aren't like a black and white easy like oh this person's in the wrong it's like no they both have different points and different sides to it and i think that's again what makes it such a compelling romance because the characters feel alive because i feel like i could you know walk down the street and and meet them and and shake hands with them and have coffee and learn about their life story i think they are just incredibly nuanced and that's what makes this story so compelling i think it's to the very heart what it comes down to is that empathy and understanding make up the core of the novel the reason it's more of a historical fiction than a romance is not only because of the lack of a happy ending but also because the romance is really secondary to the kind of mutual respect that Hiroshi and Mary have and the desire there does their mutual desire to learn from each other and it's from that place that romance blossoms it's not that they feel romantically attached first and then that drives them to learn about each other no like they they have a very pure desire to want to learn and to want to understand each other and that is what leads to the romance, romance and that's what makes it so uh, so interesting and so good to read because it, it's realistic and it it, it makes the relationship more multifaceted and nuanced really highlights that romance without that respect and that empathy is ultimately oppression i think that's the core of the novel and i think that the there's some other underlying ideas surveillance is a big one the idea you know hiroshi's kind of paranoia about being found out but then also mary and bandra's own perspectives on or if they get found out what that will mean for their family there's also it kind of explores the concept of obligation on a cultural a societal and a familial level and that's done through each level of the cultural participants as well mary obviously doesn't have the same sort of shame on a culture that hiroshi does but she herself feels was very bound to her family and to her community and she herself has to wonder about the idea of distancing herself from her family her community and her heritage for a better life which is something Hiroshi says 
of why don't you just marry a white person then he has to explain that like yes yeah, she could do that but you know it comes at the cost of everything she's ever known and that's ultimately I think why they can't ever be together uh yeah and that ending is uh, again just the most important part of this of this story it's what really sold this book for me it situates it as a historical novel rather than just a romance novel but it also just addresses in a very clear but not overhanded way the kind of historical and social realities of racism and segregation that work to keep the two characters apart in this novel just as they would have been kept apart historically so yeah it's a very 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 good book and deals with a lot of very interesting themes and particularly the kind of idea of the other is something that's really explored and it makes it really worth reading because they, again those are two perspectives i haven't really seen a lot of other literature tackle really and then in contrast, a lot of those same themes kind of do come up in Song of the Crocodile. It's not a, again, this is not a romance novel, it's, it's a tragedy. It's almost an Australian Gothic, I would argue, because it paints Australian rural places as like the gateway to racism and where more metropolitan areas are seen as more progressive, even though both are imbued with racism. Yeah, so I think it's definitely a, an Australian Gothic in that sense, in the sense of like the insidiousness of rural places, but instead of it being some sort of supernatural thing or a more natural thing as often they hear some Australian Gothic it's the beast of the underlying racism of Australian society it's definitely not a romance novel like pieces one is although romance is part of it it's more of a family novel a generational novel and it's very much historical fiction the kind of fictional town of Darmon is such an important motif throughout the story labeled as the gateway to happiness but really the whole entire story is about showing how that is not the case it emphasizes the disparity between the white colonial views of township and the First Nations view of land ownership and also just the disparity between these those two groups of people and how neither of them can really find happiness in this place. Um, in part, like the, for the white population, the, they seem to be, it's a gateway town, so they, they want to reach the point where they can move away. And for the First Nations people, it's um, they can't ever be happy there because they're not seen as part of Dunmore and they're not allowed to exist in that space. But yeah, I think in particular, like that kind of, the different views of ownership and land and uh, township is a really interesting part of this book. The white citizens often are just looking at the town as something that needs improving as some someplace they are stuck and they want to kind of mold it to be more like the bigger towns or a bigger city even they want to have fancy dresses and they want to have kind of luxuries that they think is their right whereas the first nations people still hold like a very high currency and pride of their of their community of their land even despite their displacement from obviously their original lands there's still very much that sense of oh that that bond with the land that is just absent from white Australian culture. So this story kind of looks at that from a multi-generational perspective, the idea of sovereignty and loyalty to the land, and through that provides a lot of insight into the generational trauma of violence and colonialism. I think the, I, the idea of land displacement in particular is really interesting in today's society because it has become a bit more apparent in Western consciousness due to the rapid approach of climate change that has now, probably more than ever before, been a bit more of that respect the land and that that acknowledgement of what land and nature does for us and what we in return need to do for it and owe it but this is very much old news and a very much a lived in reality for first nations people so i think this is a really telling look at how that kind of disengagement from place has led to the modern day climate change crisis another very key theme in this book is the kind of the constant form uh, the constant force of discrimination within the colonial regime because each generation of the Billy Mill family is affected by this and it's reflected through their relationship to the, to the land and to the, to, to, the, to the land and the campgrounds versus the town of Darnmore. So the campgrounds is a specific kind of segregated area in which Aboriginal communities were kind of forced to so that they weren't part of the town of Darnmore. Darnmore. And while the Billy Mill family does eventually make its way from the campgrounds to Darnmore, it's interesting to see how each participant faces either solace and imprisonment from either Darnmore or grounds in general. This novel also heavily reflects on how grief and death is, is a changing and ever-present factor within people's lives, especially through the loss and misfortune of the family. Grief is just pervasive throughout the novel. It almost, I would say, at times becomes a bit of a fixation point but i think simpson doesn't ever get too much to the stage where it just feels like waterworks and tears all the time it, it feels 
heavy but not oppressive and it what ultimately is is a powerful reminder of the weight of that generational trauma and how grief though is it is obviously a universal feeling it just holds that extra dimension that extra weight under colonial rule for first nations people and i think it's it's, it's interesting as well because grief is often contrasted with the monuments of grief from the war memorial that's that's part of Darnmore's Township and it's uh, that idea of remembrance is debated and shifted between the uh, kind of remembrance for those white soldiers in that kind of very austere memorial versus the true grief and the true memory acts as the preservation to the stories of the Billy Mill clan. The very act of remembrance although it does not have a fixed statue or a building or anything like that is powerful because the goal of colonization is ultimately assimilation through erasure and so so that that defiance there is defiance in that very act of remembrance another, another main theme is survival and an explanation of how that survival can change and shift between people for some people survival means kindness even in the face of injustice so they the way that they show that they have survived and that they have overcome is by maintaining a kindness that was not always afforded to them for others that survival kind of causes the hardness to form over where once sweetness blossomed. So Celia's are really, really, and Millie are both really great examples of this. They were both very kind originally. They, as a result of their trauma, become hardened and have to distance themselves from their kindness and withdraw as a result from their families and their community. I think there's also a, a key difference between men's survival and women's survival and what they must survive. So that's a key key explanation in this novel. Again, women's survival is tends to be a bit more, they face a lot more pressure internally i would argue and again this is a this book tends to focus on the matriarchal line so we don't really get a, a male protagonist until patty but the women often are not only have to deal with racism but also have to deal with sexual trauma as well and whilst that is not necessarily only a female experience it's definitely skews that way and so it's an important thing to note whereas the men often turn to alcohol and more overt violence as a result of their trauma the women often withdraw internally and face that kind of personality shift there's an explanation between expectations of work the expectations of violence and the sexual violence that was experienced how that shaped different traumatized men and women so again silly having to go silly forced uh being forced to provide for herself and for millie as a young child even after even though she was also trying to cope with the grief of her husband's abrupt death versus Patty's own inner dealings with his feelings of alienation and isolation that kind of then culminates into his violent violent outburst at the end of the novel. I think it's what's also important is to note is that this novel highlights how progress not just survival but progress in quotation marks again it often comes at the cost of culture family and identity within these communities because in a lot of ways that progress is measured through assimilation. Simpson does not shy away from how the victims of trauma can become perpetrators of the same system that failed them and again that that leads to very grey nuanced characters and it makes it a all the more compelling book. Patty in particular is extremely an extremely tragic character. He's born of sexual violence and then becomes an instigator of sexual violence and murder and while obviously you don't sympathize with him for that you can see how his experience shaped him and caused him to react in this violent way as grief is a massive part of this novel so too is death but they the focus is not so much on the deaths themselves but rather on the grief they feel so the deaths are often almost accepted as part of life under colonization as well there's also a lack of finality to these deaths due to the undercut of the insight into the spiritual realm that surrounds the text the ability to kind of see a character die and then immediately seeing them being welcomed into their kind of ancestral clan open arms does doesn't so much soften the blow but it does recenter the focus on the living so your grief actually comes not so much from the death of the, the, the death and passing of someone but more on the emotional experience that their so that their remaining family members are going to have and i think that's part of why despite it all i remained so hopeful throughout the text and why i was so blindsided by the ending in a way maybe that i really shouldn't have been because it, it never it never pretends to be a happy work but I did find myself constantly hopeful. I think where Simpson also really triumph is just she has such evocative descriptions of the everyday end of the land. There's a just a, she ties in a spiritual connection held between all the all things, the people, the land, the buildings, the 
the animals, everything is has is kind of spiritually connected and it, it creates a very detailed story and world. There's also a, just an integral sense of community about how when one becomes cut off from their community, they ultimately suffer, which is exactly what the sort of assimilation laws were trying to enforce. And we see the kind of short-term and long-term impacts of that. And just throughout it all, there's a continual struggle against displacement and colonialization. And it's highlighted again by a generation of the family making it further into the town, but becoming less community connected in the process. Both of these novels just deal with a lot of heavy themes, but I think they both do them in really fantastic ways, and that's why I I, I enjoyed reading them so much. I, I definitely enjoyed them for different reasons, but I enjoyed both of them nonetheless. Um, there is a fair bit of overlap between the two works. Neither of the novels bulk at the reality of racism and discrimination and in doing so they are able to draw uh, kind of parallels to the contemporary despite the historical nature of the novels uh, and again it's, it's just so important to note that these are historical fiction novels and it's about portraying the truth of the First Nations perspective in history in a way that often comes across as disingenuous or as white saviory in a lot of other literature from this, from especially white Australian authors. Having these two female First Nations authors creating these works has led to a really authentic portrayal of a very dark time in history. Both of these works are populated with characters, both Indigenous and colonial, that are grey and nuanced, and in doing so both seek to emphasise the humanity that is at the heart of these stories, and that's not necessarily the humanity as in the humane but it's more about humanity in the sense that humans are multifaceted three-dimensional and they can and they are full of both good and evil no person is truly purely good or purely evil there is always going to be a kind of give and take with, within everyone and I think that's what these stories really highlight they're both seeking to display the realities of the world they don't again they don't shy away from the racial prejudice or the discrimination that any of the characters face but I think in doing so both do provide a more hopeful outlook for the future Future. And in Bardwai and Harry Blossoms, that's kind of like they get that idea of education. And with Nani Simpson's uh, Song of the Crocodile, it's about the act of remembrance and how that the, the very act of telling these sort of stories is going to allow the culture to persevere. And that involves telling stories that aren't just nice and where people can be bad because that's how people are. Both also, I think, refuse the kind of happy ending that we hope for which it just remains completely true and poignant to the actual lived experience of facing ongoing discrimination. Yeah, so I think that that is pretty much all we have time for. I hope that this has been interesting. I hope that you have enjoyed listening. Again, I just can't encourage you if, you, if you've gone through this whole podcast and you still haven't read the books yet, my God, go and get them. They are just fantastic pieces of historical fiction. You know, you've got a romance, you've got a tragedy. They're very different stories in a lot of ways, but they just ultimately are just brilliant pieces of literature that are really important steps in furthering the kind of scope of First Nations literature. And the history is just so rich in both the stories. So if you're a historical fiction fan, just go do it for that. The way that they pair place in history, both authors interweave it so well and becomes so crucial. But yeah, I hope you had a lovely time listening. I certainly had a wonderful time talking about both of these texts. Feel free to stay around to check out some of the other podcast episodes. I know that there will be plenty of other podcast episodes coming out soon with guest speakers like myself who are English students. Once more, my, I've been Kate Milne and thank you so much for your time.